Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. The nominees are Gina Davis in Thelma and Louise. Laura Dern in Rambling Rose. Jodie Foster in The Silence of the Lambs. Bette Midler in For the Boys. Susan Sarandon in Thelma and Louise. And the Oscar goes to Jodie Foster, The Silence of the Lambs. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and today I am joined uh, by a previous guest who's been on the show, a writer for Schitt's Creek, Dan Dillabo. Hello. And today we will be discussing, I wanted to do something that was like Halloween-ish, uh, and there aren't really a lot of horror winners um, in an acting category with the Academy Awards. This category does kind of tend to get snubbed a little bit, uh, or actually, no, not a little bit. They tend to get snubbed a lot. Uh, Jodie Foster, Silence of the Lambs. I guess that's not really a horror movie. It's really more of like a thriller, but you know, well, I'll take what I can get. And uh, so uh, let's just let's just uh, jump right in. Although before we do, before we do, Kyle, Happy Halloween! <laughs> this is our this is your Halloween special. This is very exciting. This is my Halloween special, uh, or it's Gay Christmas, is what it's gay also Christmas. known Merry, as. Very merry Gay Christmas to very, you. Very merry Gay Christmas. Um, and. Uh, are you going to be dressing up for Halloween this year? I don't think so because I'll be uh, alone in my apartment mm. and it would feel deeply depressing. <laughs> I'll still dress up. I don't sure, know sure. as what, but something something simple. I think I'm very concerned about this Halloween because Halloween is essentially for, look, there's a conspiracy out there that says that Halloween is for kids to dress up and have fun. Mm-hmm. I don't buy it. Halloween is for grownups to fuck each other. Yeah. <laughs> And this, the yeah, this year, that's not, night of the year. It's the horniest <laughs> night of the year, and that's not going to happen. And I feel like there's the spirits will be disaligned. Yeah, if that makes sense. Have you been to the gay village on Halloween before? I don't think so. No, they literally block off the streets. I think from college to Wellesley, mm-hmm. uh, they block it off, and everybody that's all dressed up like walks around in their professional like theater costumes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I had somebody took my a picture one year. I was dressed up as a Harry Potter student, and somebody thought it was a really a good Harry Potter. Which which student? Oh, I was just like generic. Just, yeah, just a generic. Student. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. One of the Hufflepuffs. Yeah, well, no, I was. Oh, I was a Gryffindor bitch. I oh, was okay, a Gryffindor. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't fuck with Hufflepuff. <laughs> That's a very funny aspect about Harry Potter is that all of the houses have like a thing, and then Hufflepuff is just the the one that sucks. It's funny. Just I know a lot of Hufflepuffs. Yeah, I know. What does that mean? What is a Hufflepuff? We've already gone wildly off base. But oh, totally. I'm taking a hard anti-Hufflepuff <laughs> stance. I'm Me too. I'm Ravenclaw, actually. I okay. was Gryffindor for a long time, and then I took a bunch of those like tests, and then it turns out I'm a Ravenclaw. I was going to say, I who decides tested. this? <laughs> the internet. You got tested, and you tested Ravenclaw. Yeah. Great. Like high Ravenclaw, and then like almost just as high Gryffindor. Mm-hmm. And then Slytherin was like 50%, which frankly, I kind of would have thought that I would have been Slytherin. And then Hufflepuff was my lowest one. Right. And I, That's exciting. It's a good mix. It can be, but I think Hufflepuff is like... Um, 
I don't know what the, I don't know what the, I just, I, you know, I have a personality. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Just good, hardworking folks who don't stir up too much shit. They're badgers, right? I, d- I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think they're, I think they're Anytime house... shit happens in that school, it's Griffin, it's Harry and his Gryffindor crew or else the evil house. Yes. <laughs> and I, I guess Ravenclaw also are like the, the, the bookish. Nerdy. Nerdy, nerdy house. Well, Robert know. Pattinson was a Hufflepuff. He well, was and Cedric he fucking Diggory, died. And then so he died. <laughs> that's what happened. You can't count. On, you can't rely on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I won't be dressing up as uh, Hufflepuff for Halloween mm. this year. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll Maybe. see. Um, so this is a Halloween-ish special, I suppose. But really, I actually think that the theme of this year uh, for the 1992 Academy Awards is uh, these roles were very feminist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally speaking with a lot of these roles that I sort of like in all, especially like in older movies, like the roles for women, as we've discussed before, are like pretty garbage. Cause it's always like the yeah. hooker or the wife, very limited or the wife that becomes the hooker. Mm-hmm. And, um, this year it was very like women that were independent of men and had their own thoughts and like made their own decisions. And it's funny because I mean, especially Thelma and Louise, that was the movie that got labeled as like man hating. Yeah. There was a real, people were really upset about this movie when it yeah. came out. Cause they cause all the, most of the male characters are like awful sort of buffoonish, you know, gross men. Yeah. The filmmakers hate men, which is, I'm sorry. That's very funny. It's a <laughs> deeply stupid opinion to have. Well, it's it's like a flip. It's sort of like you mean the way that you treat women in movies up until this point in yeah, history. Yeah. It's like when they flip, they're like, which is a testament to how like kind of revolutionary that movie was. Yes, is that just like a a slight spin, like having two women at the center of a otherwise kind of conventional road movie is like yeah, set people's heads a, a tizzy. Yeah, they couldn't grasp it. It's very I, exciting. I, I did after watch uh, after watching Silence of the Lambs. I did watch um, Hannibal and I mm. watched Red Dragon. Hannibal is one of the worst movies I have ever oh, seen. Where Julianne Moore is uh, Clarice Starling. Yeah, it was basically none of. I haven't seen it, but I remember it was like none of the original people came back except for Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, because w- otherwise you don't have a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was so, don't waste your time. Okay. Like, it's so bad. And then uh, Red Dragon with Ralph Fiennes. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, actually, Ray Fiennes. Oh, it was Ray Fiennes. I learned this from a YouTube video. Oh. Like, uh, it's not pronounced Ralph? It's like a Gaelic, that's probably wrong, but it's it's oh. like a one of those European-y odd pronunciations, like Sir Sharonin. Right. Uh, that's like with, in the in the movie Red Dragon, he has this like denture. Mm-hmm. And up until when I was watching the movie, I didn't realize that the murderer was Ray Fiennes. And then at one point, they just, they don't show who he is. They just like, you know, like how like in Seven, you don't know it's Kevin Spacey, but like they, they show him like getting ready and they show him like, and he puts in like this denture. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Because he's the tooth fairy. He's the tooth fairy. Yes, yes. And he puts in this denture and it's these like mangled sharp shark teeth. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how do you, you're like, you go to the dentist and you're like, hi, can I get something in a Voldemort? <laughs> and then I actually saw that it was him. And I was like, oh my God, that's actually fucking Voldemort. That's like so weird. <laughs> like, yeah. So crazy. The man's but like, we got need a, a monster. Type. Can we call up Ray Fiennes? Let's do that. Because <laughs> he was in, um, 
Uh, Schindler's List. Schindler's List, yeah, very bad dude. Yeah. Um, kind of typecast a little bit. A little bit. Although one of my favorite movies of his uh, is The Grand Budapest Hotel. I literally he's... thought you were going to say Made in Manhattan. Okay, continue. Oh, was he in that? I, I haven't seen it. <laughs> he's uh, the love interest. It's a little weird. Okay. I mean, he's the hero in, in Grand Budapest, and he's very charming, and he's like an upstanding guy. It's, oh, he does, yeah. He does that very well. He can do it all. He's great. I didn't even think about that. Okay, well, actually, let's just um, go ahead and jump into these movies. So um, I think that, I think that, okay, okay. Who, let's just start with, uh, let's just start with Thelma, Thelma and Louise because we yes. were like already talking we're about We're already it. there. So. Uh, it rules. I, 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 I love this so, movie. This is one of the reasons I was so excited when you said you wanted to do this year is, well, first of all, four movies instead of five. Great. Double double nominee. Yeah. Uh, two of them I had already seen uh, and in my mind are like perfect films. And it was the Thumb and Louise and Silence. And Silence of the Lambs, yeah. yeah. And then the other two were just, I had not seen, and they are both kind of insane in their own way. <laughs> and I'm very glad I watched them, even if I wouldn't recommend them. We'll get into it. Yeah. But uh, Thumb and Louise, is, this, this movie kicks so much ass. It's so delightful. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing about this movie was it kind of was... It was basically like Thelma and Louise versus Silence of the Lambs at the Oscars this year. Callie Curry won Best Original Screenplay for Thelma and Louise, and I think that was the only Oscar that it walked away with. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that it was like really big competition. The thing is, is that um, I think it was the National Review Board or Board of Review or whatever um, that awarded Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis like like best actress together. Sure. Because in a way, like when I was writing down my notes for this for this movie, it's like one without the other doesn't work. Yeah, it's hard to imagine awarding one over or like prioritizing one over like it's such a it's such a buddy movie at its core and they're both so like they work together so well, they're so like inseparable. It would be weird. Like I think they both have equal billing, even. They. Um, it's it's just they're such a unit. Like that's why it makes total sense that they both got nominated. And it feels this feels weird, right, to have two people nominated for the same movie in in a leading category. I feel like that doesn't happen very much. There was. A, it doesn't happen recently, as far as I know. Uh, the one off the top of my head that I'm is I'm thinking about All About Eve with Ann Baxter and Betty Davis. Right, right, right. They tried to do that with Baby Jane, and then obviously that didn't work out, and Joan Crawford was a little pissed. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to think, like, leading. But, yeah, no, usually it it's doesn't like, happen very often. Yeah, when there's, like, a buddy situation, it's usually, like, other two performers of the same gender, then the, the studio will kind of assign one of them to lead and one of them to supporting, just kind of based on... yeah. Whatever, like this is what what they did with you know Green Book, I think last year. Even though it was clearly like their co leads, yeah, just absolutely. so they don't have to compete against each other. They did that with and it's uh, a little the Danish girl. That's right. Yeah, Alicia yeah, yeah. Vikander, where she won Best Supporting Actress, but she was the lead actress in the movie. Yeah, and sometimes no there's like a little bit of studio like shenanigans involved, where it's like, oh well, she'll have a better chance in supporting than in lead or whatever. That's right. But yeah, this is a instance where it's like so cut and dry. Like these are two leading women. It one doesn't make sense any other way. Well, one thing that I thought that I'm so glad that you said, because I watched, um, there was a movie, I always recommend this channel, I'm obsessed with this channel on YouTube, it's called Be Kind Rewind, mm -hmm. and um, they actually have uh, the, the, uh, an episode about this year, where Jodie Foster won, and they were talking about how, at the time, this movie was like man-hating and blah, 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 and then Roger Ebert was on Oprah, and he said that um, 
Salma and Louise is a buddy movie, and some and a woman in the audience yelled out, "It's not a buddy movie. It's a movie about sisterhood." And then the whole audience started clapping. And then later, <laughs> no. And then later, Roger Ebert was like, "Well, what difference?" Like, what's the difference? They're female I mean, buddies. No, but the point is, is but that's the whole point, is that the difference is, mm-hmm. it's like there's there's buddy stories, and then there's stories about, like, sisterhood, where it's just sort of like a female story is completely different from, like, two guys being friends is not the same thing as two girls being friends. Sure, sure, sure. And it's sort of like that is the beginning in a lot of movies, and even in comedy as well, like in stand-up and stuff like that, where it's like not just from the perspective of like the straight white man mm-hmm. and how there are completely other perspectives and other stories that are like just as good and interesting but it doesn't need to always be compared back to like cuz the point of it is that like it's not uh like a guy movie it's not about buddies yeah, it's yeah, supposed yeah. to be like a female storyline it's supposed to be about sisterhood in this one example but in that little anecdote but still like and um i uh I think you can tell that too. Like, it, I I don't necessarily buy into this thing of like, oh, only women can write women honestly, and only men can like. It's any you know any talented writer can write anyone, but like, it's very clear watching this movie that it was that there was like a, a woman's perspective like driving it because there was all these little moments that are so like, oh, I you know I never would have thought of that in a million years. Like at the end, you know, they they hold hands and they just they kiss each other. It's like a you know a beautiful nice friendship kiss mm-hmm. which is like you're not going to see that in you know uh bad boys too or whatever <laughs> like it's just it's such a perfect you're totally right that it's like i think it's more for me i personally that resonates a lot with me just because i find that a big criticism of my stand-up um especially like with more success that i received it would always be like, oh, maybe I should come out as gay so I can get stage time. Oh, like the only maybe reason why I should decide to be gay. Yeah, like or like to get oh, just like, for laughs. Yeah, like like oh, he's he's just booking things because he's gay. And it's like, okay, let's just actually for let's suspend reality and pretend like that was the only reason why I was booking things. It's like the reason why they're booking me and if it was only because I was gay is because that voice doesn't exist in comedy. Mm -hmm. It's like the straight white male voice or basically just the straight guy voice exists in absolutely everything. Where the gay voice, it's like the whole point of it is that it's supposed to be, it's not supposed to be for the straight guys. It's not supposed to be for, it's just like how like Louis CK, I don't really care for his stand-up comedy. I don't really watch that because it's not for me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't live in that world. I grew up as a gay person. I grew up, I don't, I don't see the world in the same way. And I will literally die on that cross. Seriously. Like I very strongly believe that. And for me, it's like my comedy is from my perspective and it's in my voice that a lot of other people understand. But then a lot of people that like don't see the world in the same way that I do, they may see it as like, oh, you're just bashing straight guys, which I am a little bit. But the point yeah, is, that's, is like, that's a big chunk of your... your yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Okay, maybe I'm losing credibility here. But the point is... But it's the idea that you, that your value is your unique perspective and what you have to offer, not exactly. just filling a quota. Exactly. It's supposed to be my story. It's supposed to be... So it's like, even if I'm talking about... You are the Thelma and Louise of Toronto stand-up. Of Toronto stand-up for the queens. But literally, like it's like, even if I'm like going to the kitchen to cook a meal it's like my version is going to be what gay Kyle Brownrigg is going to do to make that meal versus what you know uh you going and make like as a straight guy going and making a meal it's like i realize that that's a really bad example but what i'm saying is just sort of like 
it's like our experiences and our perspective. It's just eight sausages. Yeah. That's my straight guy meal. (laughs) But it's just, it's, okay, okay, I need to articulate this in like a better way, but what I'm trying... And and tie it into Thelma and Louise. And tie it into Thelma and Louise. Is that it's so important to have these stories from the perspective of the women and that a woman can watch it and relate to it and be like, oh, because I find that most stories are basically like for guys Mm -hmm. and straight guys especially. So what I usually do when I watch movies is I kind of find the one character and then I like cast myself in the movie and I'm like, okay, I'm her. Yeah, yeah. And that's the only way I can kind of get into it. And for me in this one, it was Brad Pitt. I definitely saw a lot of myself as like, yeah. <laughs> just a cool, awesome, hunky cowboy. Sure. Yeah. That, that, uh, that's, was, that's, that was who I related to. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You're just the sassy criminal uh, cowboy. I don't, I don't know if you're joking. Are you joking? I mean, yo, I'm joking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, was like, I was like, okay. Um, but, but okay. I just think that what's so great about this movie... We haven't said what the movie's about, but can we assume that your listener is familiar with Thelma? So Thelma and Louise <laughs> is like vic- a story of two women who are victims of abuse that essentially uh, are in a situation where they choose not to be victims anymore by accidentally killing somebody. Mm-hmm. They're on a road trip, just driving through the American South. Yes. And then Gina Davis almost gets raped. Mm-hmm. And then Susan Sarandon, who I... Don't really know if they make it clear, but I'm assuming was like gang raped or something in Texas. I, I think it's implied. Yeah, it's implied that she was also the victim of abuse. And then she shoots him because he was just so vulgar and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She very like it's very earned the moment where she you know, murders this kind of rapist pig guy. It's it's set up in a very smart way where it's like we are one hundred percent on board with you doing yeah. this murder because and this man is so reprehensible. So, absolutely. Um, I will say though that the cops locked down their identity so quickly, and I have seen enough unsolved mysteries with Robert Stack to know Mm -hmm. that if there are no witnesses (laughs) and you are out of town, it is practically impossible to get caught for murder. So the fact that they knew who they were immediately Mm -hmm. was where I was like, okay, I'm not buying this. (laughs) I I think it's a testament. Like this movie moves so fast. That was one thing that really struck me rewatching it. Like it's so, it's so economical and it's like over two hours. But it doesn't. You don't feel the length. It clips along. Like oh, it's even, fantastic. It's I, so, I didn't feel bored at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so like the the pacing is it, it kind of defies the sort of conventional screenplay wisdom of like okay, well we should spend a lot of time with them first and see how shitty their lives are, and then they decide to go on this road trip, and maybe we need to learn more about you know why they're friends and all that stuff. It dispenses with that stuff immediately. Like the first act is so brief. It's like okay, they're friends. They're going on a road trip. Shitty husbands. Done. It's at, like, it's the, it just trusts the audience to kind of keep up. Uh, the setting of the movie is basically like, do you remember that old Cindy Crawford Pepsi commercial from the 90s? No. It was like that with like Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon in the background. It was, I loved the setting. Well, like um, the, it, was it set in like the Grand Canyon? Yeah. Like, it, no, it was just like this like dusty oh, southern yeah, yeah, town. Yeah. And then she shows up all sexy in her Daisy Dukes. And then she like gets a <laughs> Pepsi. It's like a very iconic commercial. Um, a lot of actresses turned down this role. Cher was one of them. Um, Michelle Pfeiffer was one of them. I remember reading somewhere that. Jodie Foster was originally... Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster were originally cast, which is interesting because that was the same thing with Silence of the Lambs. That was the same order. Mm -hmm. Um, 
a lot of people turn, a lot of actresses turned down this movie. I would have loved to have seen Sharon in this, to be honest with you. Um, it's so weird when you when you hear these stories about because, like, in retrospect, we know that this is a great, perfect movie, and everyone involved should, you know, count themselves as very lucky to have been a part of it. So it's so weird to be like, why? Why would you? T- what was wrong with? <laughs> like, why did you not want to? I know. And maybe at the time, you know, they didn't have all the information or whatever. It was their lives were in a different place. Who knows? But it's such a like in retrospect, it seems like a no brainer. I know. Like, yeah, being Thelma Louise, of course. Well, hindsight's twenty twenty, but literally, I I have a quote. It said everyone in Hollywood was offered this movie and turned it down. That's so weird to it's me. It's so weird. Um, so. I mean, to specifically call out, what I'll just do is I'll just say the things that I really like that each, each actor did just because, like we said previously, it's just sort of like the movie. It's like if you're going to award them an award, it's like they both literally have to win. I don't I don't believe in ties, but like mm. this would this would be like a strong contender for a tie. Um, I would definitely say that Gina Davis had probably the biggest transformation uh, from like the controlled housewife to this sort of insanely reckless um, criminal. And it was interesting because her innocence kind of always failed her because she put too much trust in people and then mm. she always got ripped off and like fucked over. But it was like, even though as she changed that sort of kindness in her, like always stayed the same, which I thought was good because um, otherwise it could have gone a little too off the deep end with like how much of a vigilante she had become in the course of two days. Um, I also, uh, yeah, it, it basically took three days for a woman to, become like a hardened criminal, which I thought was kind of funny. But you totally buy that transition. Like it's so, that's how clearly defined both these characters are at the outset. True. Where like they, you know, even, yeah, Thelma initially is like, just kind of very naive and sort of, and, and, and you know, Louise is a little bit more hardened, but like you, they're so clearly defined and their relationship is so clearly defined from the outset that by the time they're like, you know, taking joy in you know this crime spree that they're on, it's like I totally buy that. Mm-hmm. I totally buy that you have all this sort of pent up frustration from oh, yeah. from your life, and now it's coming out, and it it doesn't feel like phony to me. No, I I, I would agree with that. Um, one thing I thought was like really funny was when she finally tells her husband off, and then immediately runs into Brad Pitt, like super relatable. Oh, right? the <laughs> shitty uh, the rug salesman guy. Uh, that's no, such a uh, oh yeah the what's his now oh, he's he's in like a lot of stuff by the way that scene is so per, it's such a perfect like masterclass in setting up a douchebag in like <laughs> under sixty seconds be like he's like telling her like quit hollering and he feels quit so, hollering and he's so proud of himself because he's the regional manager of a rug store was it I thought it was cars wasn't it something cars? like that oh I don't know um. Brad Pitt was supposed to be Robert Downey Jr., but was too short. Oh, and this was like, Brad Pitt was like, yeah, Robert Downey Jr., I guess, would have been more of a name at this point. Brad Pitt was like not a, a big star at all, as far as I, I can't think of any other Brad Pitt stuff from before this. So this was, no, this feels like yeah. the thing that really launched him into the stratosphere. It was Baywatch, wasn't it? That's how he got famous or something? Oh, maybe. Or was it like some soap opera? I can't remember. Um, but it's so like, you watch Brad Pitt in this movie and it's like undeniable. I would say that Gina Davis, to me, like if I did have to pick between the two of the performances, I would actually kind of say that Gina Davis was a little bit more of my favorite, even mm-hmm. though they were both fantastic. I think the way that Gina Davis sort of handled and was reacting to the murder slash attempted rape kind of situation was very it felt very real mm-hmm. because she she didn't like she I don't know like Gina Davis really did kind of seem like 
she was really playing like a victim. She wasn't like fighting back in the way that you would sort of expect her to. It was really like Susan Sarandon that was kind of like the hero in that situation. Mm -hmm. And, but I wouldn't say that Gina Davis is like a sad character, but I I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it's, I guess it's just sort of that sort of like innocence to her that she maintains with like throughout like the entire movie. But, um, uh, her performance just felt very real to me, is yes. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and she uh, she has kind of a, a bigger journey from beginning to end, where she yeah she starts off being a victim. She starts off in a very vulnerable place. Yeah, and you know by the end she has come so far, and she's yeah she's like oh, I got the gun to the cop's head. She like <laughs> locks the guy in the trunk. Like it's yeah, it's yeah it's more it's more satisfying to see her come out of her shell. Definitely, I Whereas love Louise. You Susan Sarandon. You get the sense that she's already kind of been a little bit yeah. hardened and and thrown around by life, and she's kind of the she's already she's she's more primed to be a hardened criminal. Whereas Gina Davis is like it's it's more surprising and more delightful to see her hold up a convenience store. Like Susan Sarandon was like helping her prime the criminal canvas of Gina Davis. Exactly. Like setting it up. Exactly. I think Susan Sarandon actually had some of the best lines in the movie. One of my favorites is um, you've always been crazy. This is just the first chance that you've had to express yourself. And I also loved you get what you settle for. Mm-hmm. That was probably one of my favorite lines. I think that Susan Sarandon was probably the like the the like not just like the hero of the movie, but she she really was like, in my opinion, like the lead, mm-hmm. and she was like a really, um, like, it was like when shit went down, it was like she always kind of stayed calm and she knew what to do even when she didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, also, have you ever seen the Simpsons episode where Marge and like the next door neighbor have like a full Thelma and Louise episode? Oh, uh, it rings a bell. I can't. I can't remember the details of it. And they're practicing shooting like cans, like in the countryside. And then, like when they're done shooting, they're like, "Good job, Marge! You hit all the cans." This like old <laughs> farmer comes out in pajamas, and he's like, "You shot my antique cans." <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "What am I gonna do now?" <laughs> it's a great episode. You That's should check so it good. out. Um, so yeah, this movie was obviously labeled anti-man because it wasn't for the men. Uh, Directed by a man. I think Ridley Scott did a wonderful job. Wonderful job. He has a very interesting... He also directed uh, Gladiator. Mm, He directed... uh, Oh, my God. He directed Hannibal. Oh, is that him? He directed... Well, at this point, he had already done uh, Blade Runner and Alien. So he was like a big, like super bankable blockbuster director at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think the original intention was for him to produce this film through his company. And they were trying to find various directors. And for some reason, it didn't pan out. And he just decided to take it on. Oh, good for him. So you can kind of see his his sort of impulses, like especially in the final third, like the chase scene where it's like very epic and like very, yes. it's very staged in a very blockbustery way. Almost like a James Cameron sort of way with like the helicopters and shit. Yeah. There's an awesome, there's a great match cut that I forgot about where the, the stoner biker pulls up in front of the cop car and they, <laughs> and Thelma and Louise have locked the cop in the trunk and he blows smoke into the keyhole of the trunk to chill <laughs> and then hard match cut to a helicopter swirling through a cloud of smoke yeah. <laughs> from the exploded truck and like smoke goes everywhere. It's such a it's such a smart little great little moment that's so fun. And this movie is full of moments like that. 
I didn't notice that. They actually, that's very interesting. I, and that's very smart the way that they edited that. Uh, what I personally saw was that the only black character in the movie was like showing up smoking weed. And like, I was like, yes, mm, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, it was, the movie was revolutionary <laughs> in some ways, but not every way. But not in every way. Um, the one thing, well, because you said, well, Ridley Scott, I mean, he he was a producer on The Good Wife, so he actually does like a lot of like really strong feminist, well, and even Alien, too. That's like mm. a, wow, good for yeah, Ridley, I didn't even put that together. Good for Ridley Scott. He's Yeah, he's been around the block. He's got so much, so much good stuff across such a variety <laughs> of genres. The guy that plays Jimmy, oh my God, was like my 1990s. He played like. Which one was Jimmy? He was Bud in Kill Bill. Was like she oh. deserves her revenge, and we deserve to. Die. Oh, with the uh, Louise's uh, boyfriend. Yeah. Oh my God. He's Michael literally... Madsen. Oh, so He's sex. great. He makes Brad Pitt look like a pile of puke. I literally was like, yum. I love that whole like. He looks like he hits like a bottle of Jack every fucking night, and yeah, he's like yeah, yeah. smoking constantly. I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> he's like, he looks like he he looks like he drinks in like a dimly lit room with like a loaded <laughs> gun on the table. Like I just, <laughs> am, I'm into that. Yeah, I'm into that. Underrated character actor for sure. Yeah, that scene in Reservoir Dogs where he cuts the guy's ear off. Oh yeah, I have only Very seen that sexy. movie once in Kingston. I don't know why that was <laughs> relevant, but it was. Uh, I. Canada's Reservoir. Canada's Reservoir. I would say uh, the one thing, another scene that I really did like was near the end when Susan Sarandon kind of has like her breakdown when like all the money is gone and like they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gina Davis sort of becomes the Susan Sarandon and like Gina Davis sort of comforts her and like takes control and she's like, I got this, like it'll be fine. And it just, again, lends to how much Susan Sarandon really... You know, you could almost argue that Susan Sarandon was, like, a supporting character. Because Gina Davis was kind of the one that was, like, benefiting from, like, all of the, like, empowerment and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Also in the 90s, everybody drove a rectangle. That is the car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cars were just boxes. (laughs) Just boxes. (laughs) Rectangles. Um, Love this movie. I genuinely don't have anything... I genuinely don't have anything bad to say about their performance. I uh, I loved how realistic Gina Davis's performance was, sort of like as a victim. Mm-hmm. And I loved the strength of Susan Sarandon's character. And the whole movie was such a treat to watch. This is my first time watching it in full. Also, at the end, when they fade to white, when they go over to the cliff, technically we don't know if they die. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting that you brought that up because I, first, yeah, this movie is such a joy, such a pleasure to rewatch. That was like my one almost minor beef was the kind of fade to white. And I wasn't sure how to feel about this, but uh, Roger Ebert in his review kind of articulated a similar thing where he felt that um, the the ending was so abrupt. Like when they, spoiler alert, they go over the cliff. Yeah, iconic ending, ending, yeah. Um, And it's such like a quick cut. And then um, like it only holds for like two seconds. Yeah. You know freeze frame fade to white and then you see kind of a montage of them in happier times kind of laughing and joking and it's it's very upbeat and his concern was that it's almost as if the filmmakers were like afraid of the ending in a way that they were trying to like minimize it or, or downplay it and i kind of felt that way initially but like the more i think about it the more i i realize it i think it's i think i really like it i think mm-hmm. it was a smart choice because because the movie is so like aside from the inciting 
you know, assault that starts things off. It's, it, it is a very uplifting and empowering movie. It's not a movie that's steeped in trauma, right? Necessarily, and so like, yes, obviously they have to die. They have to go over the cliff. That's the perfect ending. I but it, yeah, well, Susan Sarandon was kind of s- steeped in trauma. Yeah, her background. Yeah, but it's all it's all about overcoming trauma. It's all about sort of like you know seizing control of of your destiny and all that stuff. And so I feel like if the if it had really if the ending had very much lingered on them going into the canyon and dying and it had left the audience on like a sour note. I, I almost feel like that would have been a betrayal of the tone of the, of the movie. It feels like it had to, it had to end positively. It's like, it, it's almost like when you go to an Irish wake and everyone's drinking and partying <laughs> and it's like, this is like, so specific. It's like less about the death of the person and more about the celebration of the person's life. Yeah. And I feel like that's the ending of Thelma and Louise to me. Like, yes, they die, but it, that's almost secondary. It's like they had an incredible adventure and became, you know, fully actualized. Yeah. That's that's the real ending. I I completely see what you say what you're saying. I the only thing that I would say to the ending that I find kind of um frustrating is I guess you could sort of argue that the ending is just they don't want to live in a world where they are a victim. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like an empowering thing to, I guess, in this particular case, take your own life. To go out on their own terms, certainly. To go out on their own terms because they were like victims of circumstance and that ultimately affected their life in such a negative way. And so for once, they're just like, no, it's on my terms. Mm-hmm. But like... Again, watching a lot of old movies, it's like the ending for the rebellious woman always has to end in a car accident or um, just she always has to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she's being punished for her sins somehow. In my head, I'm picturing like, I don't know why I'm picturing, but do you remember? (laughs) Fucking... Atreyu from The NeverEnding Story. No, but go on. Big fucking like... The dog, the flying. It was dog like a monster. flying dog monster yeah. thing. I'm just picturing it, pick, like picking them up after it goes off the cliff, picks up the car, and then hey, maybe that happened. We didn't see, we didn't see them land. <laughs> and then it, there's just like a rainbow, and they fly into the sky, and it's just like the never-ending story. <laughs> and like that's the end of Susan. That's that's my fantasy ending for Thelma. And you know what? Why not? I love <laughs> it because it it was it was kind of a kind of a bummer ending, but um. I uh, have nothing to bad to say about this movie. I loved this movie. If you have an, anything else that you would like to add, we need to move on to our next. Nope. Thelma and Louise rules. Next. Thelma and Louise rules. Um, also, the best picture uh, this year went to Silence of the Lambs. Best director was Jonathan Demme for Silence of the Lambs. Best actor was um, Sir Anthony Hopkins for Silence of the Lambs. Uh, so, uh, Thank you for using his title. Yes, of course. We believe in the monarchy in this household. We certainly do. Um, and... Uh, best, ooh, best supporting actress went to. I should probably know this. I think this is this Marissa Tomei. No, this is one of only three, I believe, years in Oscar history where one film won all five of the top yes. Oscars: uh, yes. Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actor, and Actress. And this is the most recent one, as far as I know. Well, Jack Palance won for City Slickers, and um, oh, Mercedes Mercedes Rule won for The Fisher King. Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, um, let's move on to our next nominee. Um, 
And Salman Louis won Best Original Screenplay. That was the only thing that they walked away from. So let's talk about our next nominee. Let's talk about Bette Midler in For the Boys, playing Dixie. So I hated Dixie this movie. Leonard, <laughs> the I, Divine Miss M. Oh my God! What a what a dame. First of all, uh, the makeup in this movie is atrocious. She literally looked like she slept in her Hocus Pocus makeup <laughs> and arrived on set. It's pretty wild. This was uh, this was a sort of a trend at the time was to have the framing, the narrative framing device of it's the character when they're old, uh, looking back on the events of the film and telling the story. rose from Titanic trope. <laughs> exactly. And in Titanic, they made the the choice to have an actual old woman. Yeah. Rather than, you know, Kate Winslet in old age makeup, which yeah. would have been insane because... And hilarious. <laughs> yeah, in the 90s, uh, unfortunately, you know, the makeup artists gave it their best. And it was very distracting to see uh, <laughs> Bette Midler in her 30s sort of gussied up like a woman in her 80s. Was she in her 30s? I, oh, I have no idea. I know that she... I actually... It's so funny. I literally... I wrote down more about this movie than I did for any of the other movies because... I think me too. This movie is insane. I'm very excited to talk about <laughs> I this. I know, me too. So this was Bette Midler's second Oscar nomination. She still has no win. Uh, she actually won the Grammy. I didn't know this. In 1974 for Best New Artist. And, oh, good for her. Um, she, her, first was, her first Academy Award nomination was for The Rose. And... Um, the song that she sang for that, I didn't know this was her, was the song where it's like, Some say love, it is a river. You know that song? Oh, yes. That's Bette Midler. I did not. She has a repertoire of really cheesy Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music. Very sappy, saccharine love ballads. Which is um, funny, because she's so good at comedy. It's It kind of surprises me a little bit. One thing that is, it was very interesting, I haven't seen The Rose, which is her first uh nominated film but it's like it's loosely a biopic of Janis Joplin Mm. and um, I think the original plan was to actually make a a biopic of Janis Joplin starring Bette Midler and then Janis Joplin's estate was like no hard pass absolutely not oh really and so they kind of had to rejigger and like retrofit this movie to be a loose sort of like a story loosely based on the life of Janis Joplin but it's not actually her it's not her life and i don't know if you remember this there was this was a basis for an episode of 30 rock where jenna is uh, i've never seen 30 rock oh it's so great there's there's one where jenna is like uh, um about to star in a janis joplin biopic but they can't get the rights so they have to call it the jackie jump jump story <laughs> is she the one uh like with the blonde hair yeah jane and krakowski she, yeah she's like oh a very my God, sort of, she's so funny she's incredible I love her when she's Jacqueline White and she works for White Talent. Exactly. In, in Unbreakable Kimmy, Kimmy Schmidt. Schmidt. Yeah. She's the best. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the story behind The Rose. And so now 10 years later, uh, Bette Midler does For the Boys, for which she's nominated for a second Oscar. Uh, and this was also, uh, when it came out, uh, it was, this was also kind of loosely based on a real sort of uh, thing that people did that, you know, performers would perform in these USO shows and perform for the troops. Right. And when it came out, uh, a woman named Martha Ray, who had done this, uh, sued the production because she's like, this is my story. Yeah. This was ripped off from my life. And she lost, right? I believe she lost. Yeah. yeah. But so it's so it's very funny to me that, the, that these two Bette Midler movies both <laughs> suffered similar like legal troubles for stealing people's lives. Well, she was very typecast. I mean, maybe maybe that was her typecast, right? Was that she always had to play wink-wink performances yeah, yeah, yeah. to other people's lives. But I am not Janis Joplin. Well, because like James Caan was kind of supposed to be like Bob Hope. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. And James Caan, I actually love this drama. He said that working with Bette Midler was a nightmare. He also <laughs> called her stupid. Oh, no. And apparently James Caan, I was like, I went down this like rabbit hole or whatever. James Caan like literally complained about all of his coworkers. He did a, uh, a movie with John Wayne. He complained about um, John Wayne. Like he had a reputation for kind of just being an asshole. That's so interesting. Um, and I follow him on Twitter and he's very... Charming. Like he ends really? all his tweets with just end of tweet. End of tweet. <laughs> just a fun little signature. Uh, so anybody listening to this has not kn- that does not know what For the Boys is. Um, it's the movie about uh, Bette Midler and James Caan entertaining troops during the war mm-hmm. and sort of like how their lives intertwine over time. Right. She's like a sort of, you know, up and coming singer in, I guess, the 40s. And her uncle is a writer for... James Conkeer and James, yeah, James Conkeer is like this beloved Bob Hope type variety Comedian. entertainer. Yeah, and he's doing this USO show, and she is recruited basically to to fly overseas and, and entertain the boys. I think one of the quotes that James Conn said about Bette Midler was, "I like her, but I like my dog too." <laughs> like Brutal. he's he he has a reputation for being a piece. It's very weird that he's so mean because I think that he was so colossally miscast in this movie. I agree. And I think it's like maybe it had something to do because I think Misery had had just come out recently and yes. so James Caan was hot <laughs> at this moment. Hollywood was going apeshit for James Caan. Yeah. And so they that's kind of why he ended up in this movie. But he is not... He's, he cannot convincingly play like a beloved song and dance man. I, I don't think we really see him sing or do Like comedy. a Robin Williams or something. Yeah, it should have been like a Robin Williams. Yeah, like someone, a Broadway performer like Bette Midler. Like right. Bette Midler has that, she like is so naturally equipped to to deal with this kind of role because it's her. She's a Broadway performer. It's, it's She's indelible. You buy it immediately. Whereas James Caan feels very forced. He's re- like when he, he's like Ryan Gosling in La La Land where he's trying to dance and he's like looking at his feet half the time <laughs> and you're like, you just learned this last week. I don't <laughs> Or like even before they shot, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's actually really interesting that you say that because um, one of the things that I kind of noticed is uh, Bette Midler, I feel like this role and this nomination and this performance was inevitable for her mm-hmm. because she's very good at sort of portraying that drama queen, selfish, self-involved kind of character who's also a singer and she's very charming. Mm-hmm. And she played that role a lot. It was a very familiar role with Bette Midler. Like she did that in The Rose. She did that in Beaches. She did that in this. And that's literally just off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. You know, Hocus and Pocus. <laughs> she was a singer in that. Yeah. Uh, oh, she was a singer in Hocus Pocus. That's right. Actually, she sings the I'll Put a Spell on You song. So I think that this ultimately was sort of like the little gold star seal of approval from the Academy for being like, good job, Bet. Like, you are mm-hmm. the master of your own domain here. Yeah. Because it is a great performance. The makeup was extremely horrible and distracting. But... Fortunately, per- that was not there for all of it. <laughs> no, In much no, of the movie, God. you see her as herself. Uh, this film was a box office flop, which hurt her chances of winning. Uh, her Academy Award oh. nomination for this was the only Academy Award nomination that she managed... that this film managed to get. Um, and... I loved how at the beginning of the movie when she's playing like, you know, old Rose from Titanic, when she's old Bette Midler, she refused to go to the award ceremony that was honoring her and um, James Caan. Uh, 
So if I double check his name there, from The Godfather, uh, James Caan, uh, because, wait, he was in The Godfather, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was in The Godfather. I knew that. Uh, sure. Uh, and she was literally like, I refuse to go to this metal ceremony honoring me and James Caan, but let me tell you a seven-hour story about my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's uh, waiting for her. It's, she was literally like, she literally, it's like the old lady from Titanic, and then she's like, it's been 84 years. <laughs> um but when she was in Vietnam, uh, when that go-go dancer was like almost gang banged, and then Bette Midler comes out with like a cigarette and a microphone afterward, and she's like scolding the audience and being like the sassy sheriff. She's been through the ringer at this point. She's, she's not seen having the shit. it. Yeah, she's like over it. I can't, do you have any idea? Can I? I cannot tell you how many times that has happened to me at comedy bar when I'm hosting the show, <laughs> and I have to come out and I have to like. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Where are your manners, you audience? People don't know what it's like. Also, for the record, um, it is amazing to me watching Bette Midler whenever she's sort of doing that like lounge singer entertainment, sassy, funny little style. So many drag queens have lifted the Bette Midler style mm-hmm. over the year. I didn't notice that. Yeah, Maybe yeah. she lifted it from other performers as well, like lounge singers and she stuff. She perfected it. But she perfected it. Yeah. yeah yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, but what did you think about this movie overall? The performance I actually thought was quite good, but what did you think about this movie overall? It's so weird. It's such a, like, it's very old-fashioned in its style and kind of noble in its intention, but it's such a weird tonal mm-hmm. misfire mm-hmm. because essentially, you know, the the movie is, is saying that, that we're going to tell a story about the horrors of war uh, from the perspective of two variety show entertainers <laughs> yes. and the toll that it takes, which I don't know about you. This is like a theme that I can connect with as a person who works in the entertainment industry, living through horrifying times. Mm-hmm. And it can, yeah, you can kind of get that feeling of like, how it is, does what I do matter at all? Am, am I contributing in any way when I, when I, when I witness these things, mm-hmm. these horrible things firsthand? Like it's, I, I understand that sort of like disconnect and I'm like, oh, maybe this movie will kind of explore like how do you make how do you make your art matter? Sure. You know, no, it does not. It does, <laughs> it's like a weird. It tries to have it all. It's um, you're it's right. Like, it tries to have it all. That is the best way to put it because it's literally like the the variety vaudeville thing going on, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a sassy showbiz like satire, like very zippy and screwball. Initially. And then the relationship with her son, mm-hmm. and then the relationship with his wife and kids. They're yeah. very waspy, mm-hmm. and then there's also like a million wars going on in the background. Yeah, these these people are basically like the Forrest Gump of American <laughs> interventionism. Like they are just they hit up every war, they do them all. They start in World War II. Great. Uh, her husband is killed in World War II. That right. glossed over almost immediately. I actually forgot about There's that. There's like you, one brief 10-second yeah. scene where, where she's like at his grave, and it's like the movie's like, oh, by the way, uh, husband's dead. Okay, now <laughs> five years later, it's yeah. Korea. We go back. Uh, now, you know, the relationship's a little strained. Um, now she's like seeing the horrors of war firsthand. And they do, you know, this kind of big overwrought like – you know, the first 10 minutes of Saving Private Ryan where she's just in the shit and there's like, like yeah. stuff exploding all around her and shrapnel. And it's like, what this movie is, <laughs> it's unclear why, why we need, like we, we as an audience understand that war is bad. And we know that she has had firsthand experience of the horrors of war because she lost her husband. Right. And yet the movie's like, okay, well now, now she takes it seriously. 
but now she true but yeah but now we're not even focusing on that so much and how that has affected her because it's still mainly about her kind of squabble with james khan yeah and then it kind of happens again when she goes back to vietnam yeah and her son is killed in vietnam it's a lot of there's a lot of setup yeah 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 and it just they don't like flesh it out yeah ultimately this is all in service to Oh, is my comedy troupe partner going to like me? Yeah, I know. I I would say and that... And then ultimately they do kind of reincide over a comedy routine. This is at the at the end in the framing device when it's her and sexual. Old age. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're both being presented with this lifetime achievement awards and they haven't spoken in, you know, decades and they have it out but then they kind of bond over their little uh, <laughs> their little bits. And I I literally uh, agree with everything that you're saying. I think that if this movie was edited a little bit differently, I think it actually could have been a really good Yeah, it's good also two movie. and a half hours long. So. Yeah, it's, it's long. And it, 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 there, like you're saying, there are so many different things that are going on, and then you never really kind of get like a clear ending or like a satisfactory ending mm-hmm. to a lot of these like little tropes. And you're right, whenever the husband does die, it only takes her like... 30, 40 years until her son dies for her to like get what it's like to, to kind lose. of, oh, wait a minute, war is bad? Like, yeah. I, kept, I kept waiting for her to kind of, you know, I thought a logical arc would be like she starts off from this kind of frivolous place of like, oh, I'm just going to sing my songs and that'll be my part. And then, you know, once she gets more involved with like, you know, her, her, her uncle is fired from the show for being a communist sympathizer and she kind of, that's the, the first time that she shows any like moral indignation. Yeah. And it's like, oh, is this going to be her like, her journey towards like actually, you know, using her, her power and celebrity to like affect real change in the world. Right. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's always kind of touching on these, these things, but then ultimately it doesn't really commit to them. No, absolutely not. It reminds me of, have you ever seen the, the birthday boys sketch? That's like the Titanic. No. Uh, the premise, it's like the vaudeville comedy troupe on board the Titanic. Okay. And so you know from the movie Titanic that like the band kept playing as the yeah. ship went down. So right. the premise is basically these vaudeville comedians and their whole shtick is like they pour uh, whipped cream down each other's pants uh-huh. and then the guy rushes in and he's like this ship is sinking but then they vow to like keep pouring <laughs> whipped cream down their pants as the Titanic sinks and they're like weeping and it's very emotional like That's I'm so gonna pour weird. whipped cream down your pants <laughs> this is the movie version of that sketch <laughs> how, how does tragedy affect these dumb variety entertainers <laughs> um, I wouldn't recommend the movie but I would say that Bette Midler um with that script did a great performance. Yeah. It's very, um, it's very upper alley. It's, it's very like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't think of like a movie that I've seen her in where it's like a very sort of grounded, uh, like like something that's not theatrical. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Whereas this, because it was kind of theatrical. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's, that's why she is, she is so indelible and and so good in this. Um, and yeah, I, I get, I get why, why the Academy wanted to reward her, if not yeah. the movie at large. Um, okay, let's talk about Laura Dern in Rambling Rose. Yes. This is her first Academy Award nomination. Um, this uh, movie was only nominated for acting. Diane Ladd, her mother, was also uh, nominated, and they were really trying to push this narrative of, like, mother-daughter combo, vote for, vote for them. Was this the first time a mother and daughter have been nominated, like, in the same year? I think it was. That's pretty cool. I think we did. We talk about Diane Ladd 
Yeah, before, when we did um, because Diane Ellen Ladd was Burstyn. nominated. Yes, Diane or Ladd was nominated. My friend calls for... her Alan Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it sounds like somebody you call if you were the, hurt in a car. Yeah, the Jewish lawyer version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, Laura Dern, I believe. So uh, Diane Ladd was nominated for her supporting performance in yes. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and Laura Dern was also in that movie as a yeah. child. Yeah, because she was just hanging out on the set, and Scorsese kind of just like put her. Yeah. In, in a shot, and so uh, yeah, this is kind of a nice uh, little. Been, they were reunited. Yeah. Years later, um, mother and daughter reunited. Yeah, <laughs> Rambling Rose uh, is the story of a hooker that is <laughs> with tra- a heart of gold. With a heart of gold, it's a recurring theme on this podcast. Uh, who Robert Duvall inexplicably takes in as like their house. Keeper in like Depression era Deep South, yes, where it is frowned upon for women to be sexually active. And basically, Robert Duvall's character is trying to like de hooker her through the whole movie, right? And um, she just keeps fighting her urges. And then eventually, one of the Johns stick, and then she gets (laughs) Johns, and then she gets. Married. <laughs> this movie. I don't think she's she she's not coded as a hooker. <laughs> no, she's like as just a woman who is sexually free spirited, and the society around her is appalled and outraged. No, no, no. Like she literally. That's that was the wink. Was that like she actually? They were saving her from hooking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but once she arrives at the house, I don't think she's continuing to be a sex worker. I think she's just a... Yeah, what was that? There, yeah, that was a weird, like, the, the boys kept, like, sneaking into the yard, and then, like, Diane Ladd would have to get, like, the hose, and she'd be like, <laughs> shoo, shoo. Like, it was so weird. If this If this was a book report, and I had to sum up the theme of the movie... In like one sentence, it would be, it was very hard to be horny in the past. Yes. <laughs> Everybody in this movie is deeply horny at all times, <laughs> and they can't do anything about it. You're not allowed to be horny in olden times. It's forbidden. Absolutely. It's a sin. It is sinful. Especially in the South. But I will say that this movie is super awkward to watch. It's super uncomfortable. There was literally a scene where Laura Dern got finger banged by a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. And she had to pretend to orgasm. I literally would give her the fucking nomination and the Oscar for having to do that fucking scene. Yeah. It was super... I literally... And her I, mom sleeping in the next room. <laughs> like, no big deal. You I know when you make a, a movie about how horny you are with your mom? <laughs> I remember you messaged me on Facebook after you watched this movie and you're like, this this was the horniest movie ever. And I was like, what? And then I saw Robert Duvall and I was like, oh. Robert Duvall is horny. He's he's into her, but he's, you know, he he can't, they can't consummate it, but he wants, they almost do. And it's it's bananas. Every every character is horny, except I would argue for Diane Ladd. She's yeah. the voice of reason, <laughs> the least horny. If anybody, um, if anybody is wondering what kind of a character Robert Duvall was, if you have any Golden Girls fans out there, which I know this is all queens listening to this, so we got plenty. Uh, Robert Duvall was like the big daddy of Blanche Devereaux in this movie. He was like basically like the head of the plantation and um, everything that he's. He was almost like a. He's almost like this well-respected mayor of the town without any actual authority. Um, So this role for Laura Dern was supposed to be kind of like a star-making vehicle for her. I'm not really sure if that worked very well. Well, I think a few years later she did Jurassic Park, right? Yeah, so she she had some moments, but then after that, like, you know, it really wasn't until when Wild with um, Reese Witherspoon... Right. Where her career kind of was like resurrected and big little lies. And then she kind of 
Kyle, I will not have you besmirching Laura Dern in front of me. <laughs> she is a treasure. Okay. She is one of our finest, and I will fight you. That's interesting. I, I also, I feel like she, yeah, maybe she was not necessarily like a huge blockbuster star uh, until more recently, but she definitely in the 90s, like she did, you know, Blue Velvet and, and Lost Horizon and all these cool like indie David Lynch movies. Mm. So she had like a, an incredible body of work, even if it wasn't like necessarily uh, attention grabbing. What Which, did you think in term? Well, I mean, whatever. That that's a di- that's a different podcast. But uh, I would say that um, this movie was like a penthouse letter. It was very uncomfortable. Um, when I think when she like was brought to climax by the twelve year old, I I I wanted to turn the movie off. I was like, mm-hmm. who is this for? Because it's not for women. That's for <laughs> sure. Anybody watching this? Um, I don't like how in a lot of these movies. Like I just watched this movie called Mysterious Skin with um, with uh, Joseph Gordon Lovett, and that's my uh, uh, a Drew Barrymore impression. <laughs> I really had to think about that. But the whole movie was about like literally child abuse and pedophiles, and there were scenes. And I'm watching this, and I'm watching a 12 year old bang Laura Dern or finger bang or whatever the fuck. And I'm just thinking, what is who is this for? Seriously, is it so right. that as an audience we understand that these things are happening in the world? It's like I believe you. I don't need to see that. It, I find that very. I find it a weird choice. Yeah. I feel like it's for someone to watch and jerk off, and I don't want to know who that person is. I just I don't like those scenes. They make me very uncomfortable, and I understand that it's a reality of the. But it's just very traumatic and triggering, especially mm-hmm. if somebody that is watching that has experience or has been through that kind of trauma before it's like why do we need I don't need to see that and I really hated I didn't like a big chunk of this movie because of things like that and frankly I feel like give fucking Laura Dern the goddamn Oscar for having to go through that bullshit because I feel like as a director explaining to an actress but like okay now you're gonna like fucking have an orgasm like next to a kid I would just be so uncomfortable and just, like, the fact that she went there and she did it, like, good for you, Laura Dern, okay? Mm. But, like, I I hated it. Full commitment. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uncomfortable to watch, for sure. It is odd. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's, like, a bad choice to depict something like that in a movie. Like, you know, why not? You can make a movie about anything. I think it's interesting to, like, explore the the nature of repressed sexuality in 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 the past in a way where, you know, she, the, the minute she... Suggests any kind of sexuality, everyone's like, "Oh, you're sinful. You have evil ways." <laughs> uh, so I think that you know the way in which those uh, the, those feelings manifest themselves is certainly worth uh, exploring. Sometimes I feel like this movie does not hit the mark a lot of the time. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the time it's just weird. there is a, a crazy moment. It's basically played for laughs where she like gets gussied up and like goes to town to rope up a fella. Yeah, she's like. <laughs> wandering down the street and everyone's like all, all the guys are like ogling her and like whistling yeah and they're like you know old-timey cars are passing by and then at one point there's like a close-up shot of her butt and you hear the old-timey like Auga! Yeah. Car horn. Yes. it's perfect it's the only time that that sound effect has ever been used correctly <laughs> i would whenever they were saying that the girl is oversexed and then they um were saying that uh, because of a cyst that she has on her mm-hmm. ovary, they could like fix her and her her sinful ways. And they were right. like, "Well, what would happen to her?" And they're like, "Oh, well, we could remove the cyst, 
And then she would start to become hairy. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah. And then it would fix her. Like, I'm like, you want to turn her into like a monkey? Like this, I don't understand. Well, I think they're talking, uh, this is kind of what the movie is ultimately getting at is that, you know, any kind of like, you know, uh, know, a sexually liberated woman is like, you know. Back then is a problem. Sinful. And so when they, you know, she has, she thinks she's pregnant uh, and it turns out it's just kind of a, a cyst and they have to do a surgery. And the doctor is basically like, well, while, you know, while I'm in there, why don't I do a hysterectomy? And it's like this, this I feel like is, is, you know, a lot of this movie kind of is a little dated in retrospect, but this yeah. obviously is a thing that is very relevant. Like, you know, yeah. shadowy men in, in rooms making decisions about women's body without their consent is like, yes, but, this is, but, this is what this movie is. No, a hundred percent. But then ultimately it was that like, it, it was like, the man, the men all had to like, uh, like, I don't know how to describe it, but it was sort of like, because the man decided, then suddenly it was like, you know what? You're right. It's fine. Because the man decided. Yeah. And this is my, this is my beef ultimately is that like, you know, Diane Ladd is in the room and she convinces them not to do this and, and shames them. And, and Robert Duvall is like, yes, you're right. Of course we should not, (laughs) we should not perform forcible hysterectomies. And it, I, I feel that the movie really lets him off the hook for this horrific decision that he's about to make and probably would have made yeah. were it not for Diane Ladd's presence. Yeah, so give Diane Ladd the Oscar for supporting role because she was the supporting character. Um, I think one of my favorite lines from the movie was at the end when Laura Dern was like, I don't know, I can't remember what the boy's name was. Let's say Bobby. She was like, Bobby, girls don't want sex. They want love. Okay, I think Speak they also want yourself. some sex too. Speak like for I think, yourself, Laura Dern. Yeah, I, I think they, I think they want some sex too. Um, but yeah, this this to me was the Blanche Devereaux story. This movie, um, and I absolutely uh, was super uncomfortable by this movie. I didn't hate it, but like it was just very like the Mike Pence story, and I just was like, yeah. I'm glad I watched it because it because it took such a hard right turn from what I was expecting. Like I genuinely from the the opening, I was like, this is gonna be a like little house on the prairie like very sort of conservative hallmark type thing yeah and then it almost immediately took a hard right turn into like like sexual angst and repressed yeah so i'm like okay i'm this is very weird and i'm on board with it i i cannot say i would recommend it no <laughs> um very glad i watched it i will say the, the the cardinal sin of this movie i hated this so much so we talked about for the boys uses the framing device where it's her in old age telling the story in the past and for the boys it makes sense because it's building up to the climax of the movie that happens in the present day so it's like we need the framing device because that sets up you know the end with this it does the same thing where it's this boy who is now a man and he is returning to the house that he grew up in and thinking like oh i remember when rose came to stay with us <laughs> and then we see the whole movie happen in flashback and then at the very end we cut back to the present day, and it's the boy, now a man, meeting with his father, Robert Duvall, who is now an old man, and they're just like, oh, Rose died. I know. <laughs> but, you know, but she lives on within all of us. And that's it. There's no no purpose for the framing device whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? So you're telling me, so she, Rose, you know, grew up and died many years after the events of the movie? Yeah, of course. That's true of every character in every movie. 100%. We do and- not need this information. Why did Kevin McAllister's dad need to, yeah, have, like, I agree. Exactly. I agree. It's such a weird, like, 
Like, I get that you want to have that thing of, like, telling the movie in flashback, but you got to have a reason for it. Oh, I, I completely agree. Um, I don't recommend this movie, but she did a great performance, and seriously, just give her that damn Oscar because of that finger-banging scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one uh, anecdote. Okay. Uh, so when, uh, when Laura Dern found out that she and her mother had both been nominated for Oscars for this movie, she called her grandmother, uh, Diane Ladd's mother, to tell her the news. And the grandmother apparently said, oh, that's good. I still wish you'd become a hand model. Yeah, <laughs> that too. That's really Just funny. It's a fun little grandma thing to say. Oh, uh, I do. I really do like Laura Dern a lot, though. Um, okay, She's let's talk about our winner, the feminist iconic character, Clary Starling for Silence of the Lambs, Jodie Foster. This is her second Academy Award. Her first was for The Accused, where she played a victim, and then this time she is the person saving the victim. Hmm. Um, Jodie Foster said that this was sort of like a healing role for her, which is why she fought so hard for it. Michelle Pfeiffer was originally cast. She said that she didn't want to do it because it was too dark, too violent, too... um, gratuitous and she didn't yeah very grotesque apparently also laura dern was considered for this this is a very incestuous year everybody was considered for everyone else's movies i love that but i think she was not considered bankable enough at the time i think um okay so this this performance and this character claire starling and jodie foster ranked by the film institute of america's as one of the great as the greatest heroine in film history um the i I, this was one of those movies that I actually haven't watched in a really long time, and um, I felt like I was watching it again for the first time, because mm-hmm. I was actually sitting down and paying attention to it, and um, I, like, this is a flawless performance. Yeah, it's wonderful. Her character is so amazing. I hate that they use a student to get into the mind of, like, the world's most insane criminal, but that's a completely different thing. On her first day when the guy when she's leaving the cell the one of the one of the inmates throws like jizz on her yeah um what i love is that jodie foster allowed that scene to happen and she when i like first of all that like Okay, imagine, like, going to a bar after with your friends, and they're like, so how was your first day? And they're like, oh, it was good. I mean, it ended in an AIDS test, but, like, it was, yeah, it was, like, really good. Like, (laughs) that's fucked up. And, like, the way that she kind of handled it and the way that he takes care of him, like, by making him kill himself and stuff like that, it's all fucked up, but it's, like, fucked up in the best way. And, Mm -hmm. like, literally, like, all these realistically fucked up things happen, but she you can tell that she's upset, but she it, she, it never, she never lets it get to her. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that she's like trying to let it not get to her. Yeah. How the fuck do you act that? There's, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's such like, you can see the, the work taking its toll on her of like talking to Hannibal Lecter and, you know, rehashing all these horrible things from her childhood. And you can like, you can see the emotional toil bubbling beneath the surface, but she's so hyper competent and, like, there's no sort of end of Act 2 moment where she's just, like, in despair. Like, I can't do it. I can't solve the crime. It's too much. Like, she, she's just laser-focused and professional. It reminded me a lot of um, another Oscar-winning performance that I love, uh, Frances McDormand in Fargo. Yeah. Where she's just, like, a, a just a hyper-competent woman just, like, who has, you know, her own feelings and her own emotions about the case, but it's just you know, laser focused on getting the job done and does it with like expertly. And it's just so, it's so good. She, 
one thing that I love it's competency porn yeah that's the word I was looking for I love that no I I love that she's one of the most iconic feminist characters in movie history she actually was a huge inspiration for Scully on the X-Files yeah and um, when I well, first of all, it's like none of her successes is reliant on men at all, mm-hmm. and uh, she even corrects one of the. Remember when the the chief of what of the FBI of the bureau or whatever he literally like goes like, oh, you know, like we're, we're going to be talking about like sexual things, and because we're in the presence of a lady, like we have to leave. And then he's like, you know, I was just doing that so that we could like get privacy. And then um, she goes like, I know that you're doing that, but when you do those types of things, like it matters when you yeah. do those things and it's fucked up when you do those things in front of a woman don't do that mm-hmm. and I feel like in a movie like that that probably wasn't very common to see a scene like that and the way that she's kind of taking control of the situation and she's very professionally being like mm-hmm. don't fucking do that shit yeah. I literally was like a little turned on um, she holds her own like goes, going toe to toe with just this maniacally insane cannibalistic serial killer who she knows has, has done these unspeakable things, but they're like instant sort of easy rapport that they have where she's like, not, she doesn't really allow <laughs> herself an to easy rapport. It seemed a little frightening. It's a little bit, but she like, doesn't, you know, she's not over it. She doesn't allow herself to be like intimidated by, and like, it's so, I think that's, that's the, the genius of this movie is that it's essentially a, a buddy movie almost. And she, it's and sisterhood. like, it's sisterhood. It's a little bit sisterhood. <laughs> Uh, Hannibal Lecter is, is her sister. <laughs> they braid each other's hair. It's fun. Uh, and then the Buffalo Bill stuff is sort of like the episodic, like, and this book is part of a series. So it is, in a sense, it's like that, that's the episodic story. And then the broader story is, you know, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And you can see, but you see immediately, like, from the first conversation that he likes her and he respects her. And that's why, you know, he's, he doesn't need to help her. He doesn't need to give her all these clues and, and help her with her profile and help her track down Buffalo Bill. Also, he, the movie had nothing to do with her sexuality. Nothing. Oh, yeah. She doesn't like, have a boyfriend or anything. It's not like, yeah, it's she's just a career woman through and through. I think one thing that I just love and I think is so funny is just the fact that the FBI chose to just traumatize this student with the most mm. fucked up case. Like, can you... Yeah. They they saw something in her. Yeah, and she and she's she's a fucking boss ass bitch, and she fucking did it. I love it. Um, one of my favorite scenes is uh, the woman that's in the well. She actually was on Grey's Anatomy. Okay, and she when Clarice like finds her and she's like, "Hi, like I'm Clarice Starling. I'm with the FBI. Like you're safe now." And then she's like, "Don't fucking leave, you fucking bitch!" I <laughs> laughed my ass. I'm like, Did you just call her a bitch? I was like, "She is saving your ass." Doctor Grey's Anatomy in the it well right now, funny. like that. That I thought was like a laugh out loud moment. Um, hey man, if you were trapped in a well for weeks on end, you would you would be a little testy. Little little testy. Uh, Jodie Foster. I think I'm gonna start calling her JFO. Um, I just love 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 her. Um, I also um, one of my favorite lines ever in like movie history is because it's just so abrupt and like what the fuck, but it's because it's relevant to the character is when he's like, oh, wait, was she a great big fat person? <laughs> and she's like, oh, yes, sir. she was, uh, she's a, a heavier girl, sir. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that scene. It's like, whoa, but then you're like, right, because that's his thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's I love such that a, scene. Everybody's, I feel like being in a moment like that where someone has just said something so obnoxious, yeah. but you have to, for your job, you have to not call them out and you have to be like, yes, the, yes, she was very fat. Yes. Yeah, you're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, even though it's unsettling, yeah. absolutely. 
calm under pressure. Yeah. Um, this character felt like a living, breathing in character. And I, um, what's really interesting about, uh, um, the way that Sir Anthony Hopkins and she did the scenes, they weren't even talking to each other. They weren't even looking at each other. Mm -hmm. It was like they're instead of looking like you'd look in the camera, but you don't look down right at the lens. You look a little to the left. And that's how they did all those, like, like the the scene where she's talking about making the lambs stop screaming and she takes one of the lambs. Yes. Like, that whole scene, she's just talking to a camera, like, literally inches from her face. Mm-hmm. Which, like, how do you do that? I don't know. I may, Sometimes, because, like, even when the, sometimes when you're just doing a close-up and the other person is not there, they will still, like, be off camera. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of general, like, actor's rule like you you show up and you do the scene with your partner even if it's not your coverage just because it's the nice thing to do so i like to i like to think it was that um i honestly i i truly don't have anything else to add to this this performance for me was like a masterpiece it's so good yeah it is definitely uh a very unconventional oscar movie in a lot of ways just because hey yeah it is very horrifying it's um it is it is a horror movie i don't know do you think it's a horror movie for the argument of this episode, yes. <laughs> yes. I feel I feel like it's it's almost it's so good that it almost doesn't matter to me. It's one of those movies yeah. that blurs the lines between like you yeah. know, thriller and horror and like psychological horror. Yeah. So effortlessly. It is like it is very like the nature of the violence is very baroque and, and heightened, but also it is very grounded in like the nitty gritty of like the procedural stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it is like a genre movie, basically, which is again do not win Oscars that much. Um, also, it uh, it came out in January of this year of 1991. So by the time of the Oscars, it had been out for like over a year, which is is pretty rare, I think. Like usually the Oscar movies come out at the end of the year, so they're fresh in everyone's mind. But this movie was just so really yeah, it was so memorable and so indelible that like a year later, people were like. That's the one. Like Zootopia. They did that with Best Original. <laughs> exactly like Zootopia. <laughs> they did. It came out like it came out in like the, the day after the Oscars, basically. And then a year later it won Best Animated. Mm-hmm. And I remember, yeah. Because it's just so it's, it's so good. It's undeniable. Yeah. <laughs> Zootopia. I'm talking about Silence of the Lambs. The si- not, not Zootopia is like the Silence of the Lambs of Disney movies. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, if you have anything else that you would like to add about this movie, let's go ahead and pick who we think should have won the Oscar so if you'll go first yeah I think that the Oscar should have gone to Jodie Foster for Silence of the Lambs I think they made the right call yeah. I think she's so good uh, yeah she holds her own you know all of these uh, these dialogue scenes with with Anthony Hopkins uh, are, are so good and so tight and I mm-hmm. Usually, you know, you remember Hannibal Lecter in your mind. He's like the sort of indelible villain. And it's easy to forget how good she is along with him mm-hmm. in a, a much less flashy, like straight performance, essentially. She, um, his performance wouldn't work without her performance. Yeah. Um, when I was watching Red Dragon, Hannibal, you know, stuff like that, it's, it's some, something was missing. Mm-hmm. Something was definitely missing. Um, although Julianne Moore plays Clarice, but like, you know, it's Julia Moore is great, but it it's not Jodie Foster. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I'll just go ahead and say who I think should have won. So I think that the Oscar should have gone to Jodie 
Jodie Foster for Silence of the Lambs. Uh, obviously, I mean, J-Fo, uh, feminist hero, feminist iconic character, love this movie, love her performance. I truly would say that it's a masterpiece in acting. Same with Sir Anthony Hopkins. Frankly, I would have given it to Laura Dern for having to be finger banged by a 12 year old. But <laughs> I also live in the real world and I can see good acting and recognize good acting. I actually feel like the biggest competition in this year would have been Gina Davis, mm-hmm. yep. in my opinion. Because in any other year, it would have been Ethel and Louise, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Not even Susan. Lamb. Seriously, I, for me, it was Gina between yep. the two. I, if between these, it would have been Jodie Foster and Gina, but I mean, seriously, like Jodie Foster winning for Silence of the Lambs, like it's, it's a Fritz Bernays, it's like it's just, it's no question. And, uh, I, uh, I'm, yeah, I like everything that you said. And it, for me, it was Gina Davis was like a close second, but yeah, Jodie Foster gotta, gotta go with JFO. 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 Uh, all right. Well, uh, this has been a, we're going to conclude our spooky Halloween edition. I need to add in like spooky music. Uh, uh, Dan, always a pleasure. Likewise. Uh, Thank you for coming on the show. Guys, if you do like this show, please um, tell people about it. Tell your gays. Tell your um, local politicians. Write them a letter. That's what you're supposed to do. Write your congressman. Absolutely. Um, And if you're American and you're listening to this, for the love of God, vote and don't vote for her. Okay? (laughs) Just vote. Vote. Vote you the know way. what to do. You know what to do, ladies. You know what to do. Um, and uh, also, if you do like the show, please review. Leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever the fuck. Do they do I- reviews on, I- on Spotify? I don't know. I don't know. Let me review works. on iTunes. Okay, I need them. And tell people about it. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye.